Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This episode is a special one for Policy, Guns and Money, as it reaches its 100th episode. I would like to give a special shout out to Renee Jones, co-founder and original host of the podcast, Jerry Cashman, co-founder of the podcast, and Andrew Davies for the podcast name. To celebrate 100 episodes, we are delighted to be joined by former Prime Minister John Howard and the Honourable Kim Beasley. In a conversation with Peter Jennings, they discussed some of the key strategic events from the past 20 years, including Afghanistan, the importance of the Australia-US alliance, and ASPE's 20th anniversary. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, John Howard, Kim Beasley, thanks very much for joining me to reflect on ASPE's 20 years of operations, and more particularly on the remarkable strategic events which have unfolded over the last 20 years. But I thought we should start with current events. Can I ask you both to reflect on the return of the Taliban to Kabul? This is surely a massive defeat for Western interests, wouldn't you say? Yes, you can't see it in any other light than a at the very least, a significant embarrassment for the West and particularly the United States, which had led, understandably, the original intervention. The scale of the embarrassment has been amplified by the disorderly end. There was an acceptance that at some point involvement by the Americans would come to a conclusion, and there was a bipartisan agreement on that. Uh, President Trump had made it clear I think he was in error, in effect, saying that America was going to pull out by an approximate date and then sit down and talk about the circumstances in which it was to occur. To what extent that bypassed the Afghan government, uh, we don't know yet, and perhaps we will never know. The Taliban, of course, is a grisly lot, to say the least. And when grisly lots uh, are successful, uh, that's an embarrassment to the outside world. But... Having said that, I don't think it's evidence that there's been some epoch-changing decline in American power. I think it was more a reflection of the war weariness of the American public. Mm -hmm. And I think to ignore that and to jump to the conclusion that this is uh, something that suggests that America can never be relied upon in the future, I think that's absurd. But I wouldn't underestimate the morale boost it gives to those around the world who despise the United States and everything that the United States stands for. I think I was surprised with Joe Biden's assertion that the the withdrawal could not have been any less chaotic. To me, I think if they'd crafted a strategy which said, look, three years to go towards perhaps the end of Biden's first term, and in that period, you would strengthen the Afghan special forces, you'd start to move your uh, supporters out of Bagram rather than using Kabul International. I mean, there could have been things they could have done which would have given them, I think, a more orderly withdrawal. Not clean, I wouldn't think, but more orderly. I think one of the paradoxical things was everything you've just said is absolutely right. should have been a lot more orderly, yet it was quite an astonishing logistic achievement to apparently shift 123,000 people in a very short period of time, which is just a reminder, to use that American expression, when it comes to shifting men and materials, it's very hard to beat the United States. But it certainly looked bad. 
and when something like that looks bad, that is bad in itself. Yeah. Because uh, impressions count enormously in not only uh, domestic politics, but they count even more in international politics. Kim, what was your view of it? Well, uh, very sad, but to me, not unexpected. I would agree with both of you on generally in the characterization and on the question of withdrawing from Afghanistan. I didn't think it was necessary to withdraw from Afghanistan. The Americans and, and NATO in particular, groups there, were actually really dealing with the issue to the point of stalemating it effectively. Mm-hmm. And they could have hung on there. Basically, however, what they were doing and, and accepting it is they're holding up a hollow structure. And you knew it was a hollow structure because, what, 65% of the budget that was running Afghanistan and keeping everybody going is supplied by America and the Europeans, basically, and the Saudis too, I think. But it was not viable. Therefore, if you pull the rug out from under that, the fact that it is an incipient failed state becomes obvious. So that's the first thing I'd say about it. The second is... When I was ambassador to the United States, Biden was always opposed to any increase in activity in Afghanistan. He thought the Americans should have been out of Afghanistan years before the Obama administration. That was Joe's view. And he made that amply clear every time a crisis came through. And usually he was the only one in opposition. So the idea that Biden could somehow or other be talked out of a Trump timetable I think was probably, I thought he might be able to be, but he wasn't able to be. He'd reversed every other Trump foreign policy. He might reverse this one as well. The third thing I'd want to say, I mean, it picks up on something that John just said then. People keep comparing it with Saigon. Saigon, they lifted 7,000 people. That's the only people that get out of Saigon. The Americans, as as John points out, picked up 120,000 people. What people tend to forget who are worried about the Americans who've been left behind, is that since March, Tony Blinken has been saying repeatedly to American citizens in Afghanistan, get out. Uh, They've also taken quite substantial numbers of people who were their enablers and took them out. So, So people who want to beat up on the capability of the United States need to have a look at that. There are many people who will do that joyously. From my point of view, though, what about us? What does it say as far as we're concerned? Well, we need to remember why we're there. We're there for one reason. It was a reason that John Howard announced. John Howard applied ANSYS and said when he came back from September the 11th that we were at war alongside our ally because in the terms of the treaty, our ally had come under attack. While ever the United States was there, if we were upholding our treaty, we'd be there. Whenever the United States withdrew, we had withdrew and we had not withdraw until such time as they did. Well, we held to that. So I often say to servicemen, and I've had a few occasions to address them lately, you've got to understand war in the end is politics. And I'm sure you do understand that. And our survival as a nation depends upon the depth of the character of the relationship that we have with the United States. So you were there to do all sorts of things in Afghanistan, but the primary reason why you were there was to uphold a treaty that we had. Did you do that? Yes, you did. John, do you ever reflect on those 20 years of Australian occupation, largely 20 years in in Afghanistan, and think to yourself, 
perhaps this was a strategic mistake in, in any way? No. Um, I, I reflected on it often, uh, both while I was Prime Minister and after. I never had any doubt that the original decision was the right decision. The evidence that al-Qaeda was responsible for the attacks on the 11th of September was overwhelming. And it was something that attracted bipartisan support in Australia and indeed around the world. Iraq later on was far more controversial. So I've never had any doubt about it. And it did justify invoking the Andrews Treaty. And I agree with what Kim Beasley has said about that. And the other observation I'd make is that there's a narrative that's developed and it's been reinforced in recent times that there was this decisive shift from rooting out al-Qaeda to nation-building and exporting democracy. It wasn't quite as clear-cut as that. There were certainly some people in the American administration who thought you could export democracy, the American administration of George W. Bush, I'm speaking of, but I never got the impression from the former president or many of the senior people around him, with the exception perhaps of the vice president, who I think was identified probably correctly with the exporting democracy view, that uh, that was the main aim of Afghanistan. I think what happens is that once you get involved militarily, the circumstances on the ground end up altering the mission rather than the mission altering your behaviour on the ground. I mean, I can remember the discussions in 2005, I think it was, preceding our sending special forces back. And the tenor of the advice was, oh, there are signs that the Taliban is reforming, there are some signs that al-Qaeda is still around, and we need to reinforce the effort. So we sent some special forces back. And then the year later, we're into provincial reconstruction groups. And the argument generally was, oh, look, if we can settle things down locally, if we can improve the local governance, if we can improve the services on the ground, that will reinforce the military containment of the Taliban. So it's, it's not as if we addressed a whole new set of circumstances that now this is no longer a mission to contain the Taliban. It's mm -hmm. a mission to build democracy in Afghanistan, there were obviously many people around who thought that that might happen, but a lot of people with harder heads didn't think it was ever going to happen. But I think it's important to temper this assumption that we just converted the whole thing willy-nilly from a military containment operation to something that was designed to export democracy to Afghanistan. That would have been a nice outcome, but I don't recall the decisive discussion that embrace that new policy. What I do recall is that we had pretty strong advice that it would help enormously to consolidate the gains that had been made if we were to return forces. Do you think that terrorism is going to become a more pressing threat now that the Taliban are back in charge or is this a different environment? I think I can only say in relation to that it's used the uh, much used chow and why expression, it's too early to tell. Too early to tell. Uh, I Kim, think it is what... much too early to tell. I'm sceptical of this idea that it's a different Taliban. Yeah. I find that very, very hard to accept. And in the absence of any terrorism intelligence, if I can put it that way, um, I don't know what the capacity of al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda-like operatives, what their capacity is to mount a terrorist operation. I remain, as most people should, 
intensely suspicious of the links between the Taliban and other elements in Afghanistan with Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan has been a murky player in a lot of these activities. And much as I had, all I admire the skill in another endeavour of its current leader, <laughs> I remain profoundly suspicious of Pakistan's motives. Jim, what do you think on the terrorism question? I think it's a mixed position. Unlike the situation 20 years ago, the United States now knows every square inch of Afghanistan. The United States knows where all the training camps are and the potential camps. Keeping things under careful observation, you notice where people are moving in particular directions. They had a very good listening capacity in relation to the Taliban in operation and also in relation to the terrorists in operation. They have a whole new array of equipment. It was useful to be able to operate against Al-Qaeda from Afghanistan because when you're moving in to deal with problems via special forces, it helps to have them in helicopter range. They don't have that. That's gone. But they're well and truly within drone range. And so I think the position is totally different from the position that was at the time when uh, John Howard sent us there. So I think, yes, there'll be an awful lot of fundamentalists taking an awful lot of encouragement from this. Now that the Americans are out of the way, what, as I saw Coruscant said, is going to be its principal objective. Its principal objective is going to be to attack the Taliban. Taliban. Yeah. Well, that's going to keep the Taliban on its toes, I can tell you, because <laughs> uh, there's a lot of them. Yep. And they're aimed straight at the Taliban. And so I think the Taliban are going to be some interested in a bit of counter-terrorist activity in the circumstances they face. So there's the exemplary element. There's no question about that, that the example here, because basically people will falsify what happened. They'll falsify the idea that somehow the Americans were driven out militarily. They weren't. They made a miscalculation, I think, about the extent to which the Afghan government and its forces were hollow at the command level. But it wasn't American forces being driven out of Afghanistan. It was, in the end, American forces unable to be interdicted by the powers on the ground who lifted 120,000 people out of it in a very short order. So, I mean, it's it, as a demonstration of American capability to handle terrorism or a demonstration of the American capacity at arms, it demonstrates nothing as far as life being made more difficult is concerned. So you have to say, along with John, too early to tell, but you also have to identify, I think, different circumstances and capabilities. Well, let's turn to the alliance relationship. A significant anniversary this year, not simply Aspie's 20th, but also the 70th anniversary of the ANZUS Treaty, which is frankly quite remarkable if you look at the broader history of how alliances have been created and then break apart over the last few hundred years. Can I ask you both to reflect on the alliance as we pass that 70th anniversary? Is it still central to Australian security? Oh, I think it's fundamental to our security. I don't have any hesitation in saying that. It's the wisest treaty arrangement Australia has made in my lifetime, and I was born in 1939, and it's undeniably the foundation of our security. 
I would go further and say, I don't think the United States has had a better ally than Australia. Now, that's not just because of ANZUS, although ANZUS has reinforced it. And as we found uh, in the 80s, when the Longy government was in power in New Zealand and had a policy quite different, I might say, from the policy of the government of which Kim was a distinguished member on nuclear ship visits, in effect, was suspended from membership. So you can behave indifferently to an alliance, as was demonstrated then, but I think the value of it to Australia remains. There are going to be some challenges ahead, and it's hard not to recognise at some point the elephant in the room, which is Taiwan, uh, is going to loom, just in what form and how, and precisely how that's handled by the United States. I hope the United States is working overtime to the extent that it can to encourage non-provocative behaviour not just by the Chinese, but also by the Taiwanese. I think one of the really good things in that area of the foreign policy of the Bush administration was the amount of time it invested in discouraging the leadership of Taiwan from any kind of provocative behaviour and emphasising again and again that the longer the antagonisms could be contained, the better now. You've got a new regime and a far more belligerent, aggressive one. But in the long run, if some kind of peace between the two can be preserved, well, it pushes back and reduces the likelihood of something really brutal breaking out. But you can't doubt the value of the alliance. It's not perfect and uh, it's had its glitches, but I think it's just so fundamental. And I don't think what has happened in Afghanistan in any way diminishes the value of the alliance. And the thing that should be remembered, in, you know, Kim rightly said a moment ago that everything's down to politics. Interesting thing about the alliance is that at some stress points, I mean, Australia joined the war in Vietnam, which became increasingly and then in the end incredibly unpopular under a centre-right prime minister that supported the actions of two centre-left, if you can call them that, presidents of the United States, I mean, the, the fateful commitment of combat battalion in 1965 by Menzies was when Lyndon Johnson was the president. And then you can equally say that some stress points arose during the time that the Hawke government was the counterpoint to the Reagan administration and then the administration of George H.W. Bush and the alliance worked very smoothly then. So that's one of its great features and it's important to keep that in mind. Mm. Kim, your perspective on the alliance and its place in Australian security these days? Well, you've got to make a big effort, Peter, to get out that book that ASPI has produced in relation to ANZUS. Best thing I've read in years. Fabulous articles in it. Immensely moved by an article that uh, John Howard wrote about him being in Washington at the time of the attacks in, in New York and Washington by Al-Qaeda which actually showed the sort of seamlessness of the working of the relationship as it had become. I don't think we can effectively defend ourselves without the character of the relationship with the United States. Now, that does not mean necessarily that to defend ourselves, we require an intervention of American troops. But we sure as hell require our troops to be provided with the equipment that is at the peak of technological capability that we get from the character of our association with the United States. Likewise, intelligence. One thing's very different from the time in which ANZUS was created 
And that was the three agreements in the 1960s which established the joint facilities. And the two additional agreements, I might say, in the last few years would have put another couple of joint facilities up the coast from where I am now, associated with space. Those joint facilities, this is what Australians don't really grip. Those joint facilities are part of the Australian order of battle. They're not simply part of the American order of battle. We can't communicate with our submarines without Northwest Cape, and our eye on the zone around us is entirely wrapped up with Pine Gap and the other facilities. With them, we exist in a region militarily which is totally transparent. Without them, we will be deaf and blind. I mean, replicate them, not possible. But in the effort to get somewhere near where they are now in provision for it, that effort would cost us multi-multi-billions and be a massive distraction from the equipment we should be buying. We can't operate without ANZUS operating on the basis that it is now. I think the world would have to be an extraordinarily different place. The United States to come to the conclusion that making sure that Australia survived was an unimportant issue for the Americans. We are their easiest ally, and we are, in areas of intelligence, their best ally. Let's talk about China. Obviously, over the last 20 years, China has come to dominate strategic thinking. And I would say not just as it relates to the security of the Indo-Pacific, but globally. John Howard, what did you make of Paul Keating's recent comments that we've been needlessly provoking China? Look, I didn't agree with that. And that's not because I automatically disagree with a lot of things Paul said. I just think it was just not based on fact. And the big change has been the change in attitude to the outside world by the leaders of China. We're remembering a lot about the 11th of September, but only a few weeks after the 11th of September, there was a very significant APEC meeting held in Shanghai, which is one of the, I think, one of the great cities of the world to visit. It's a fascinating place, Shanghai. And it was the first ever APEC meeting in China. It was chaired by Jiang Zemin, the president of China. Remarkably, he conducted all the proceedings in English. He even delivered his own address in English. And the sense that everybody was in there in support of the United States, while you know, it wasn't palpable in everything that was said, it was very strong. And one came away from that meeting with the feeling that there was a shared rejection of terrorism. And I remember talking to President Bush at the time, and we looked out on all the vacant streets, all the cars had been cleared away, and he said, gee, John, you wouldn't get away with this in New York. I said, you wouldn't get away with it in Sydney either. But the point of recalling that exchange was simply that it was still a communist state and it was still dictatorial and people still got pushed around. But you had as a leader of that country, one of the probably the most interesting in many respects, world leader that I met in the whole time I was Prime Minister. And he was very committed to having a, as friendly a face as possible to the outside world. But what has really changed is the belligerence, China. I don't think our government has done anything particularly provocative. I actually saw the statement made or the interview that our current Foreign Minister had, Maurice Payne, on, I think it was the insiders in which she called for an inquiry. Well, 
I thought it was said pretty softly. I didn't think it wasn't attended by any particularly belligerent language. And it's a no-brainer that there's got to be a proper inquiry into how how COVID originated. So, but I think it's in China is is hugely important to Australia in, in a whole lot of ways. And we have to, on one hand, stand up for who we are and what we believe in. But we should also not get into the trap of taking. You know, schoolboy debating pot shops at China. I mean, we've got to put up with a bit in the interests of a very valuable long-term relationship. Now, it is true that we should try and diversify and worry about our supply chain and all of those things, but that takes a while. And China is just so important to us. And China will want our high-quality coal. They'll want our iron ore and they'll want our natural gas. And for a long time into the future... And I think a lot of their growing middle class will want our wine too in, in uninterrupted flow. So we have to be very, very careful in that relationship. But I don't think we have fallen into serious error today. I think it's just become very hard and we have to put up with a certain amount, but not anything that affects our, our basic values. Kim, your thoughts on... China's rise over 20 years. Any comments on Paul Keating's remarks also? Well, really sad. You know, I think we've had over the, most of the last 20 years a really good, mature relationship with China. I think it's been excellent. It does enter controversially from time to time in Australian politics, including Australian party politics. But by and large, there's been a sort of bipartisan and an Australian view that the relationship with China is wholly good. And that is, of course, in part manifested by the character of the trade with China, which is enormously favourably balanced for us. And I'm the government of Western Australia, and the simple fact of the matter is that with the eastern states, this used to be, I think it probably still is, a nine-to-one trade balance in favour of the East on our domestic account. And we survive in West Australia on the nine to one trade balance on our external account that basically we have with North Asia and largely with China. So there is a good sense in trying to sustain that. Having said that, it also has to be said that basically most of the issues which have arisen have not been provoked by us. Most of the issues that have arisen are products of shift in the direction of Chinese policy. And in no small measure, the repudiation of the sorts of directions put in place by Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin was essentially following those directions when he was in the chair. It is not easy to figure out what that China has become or what their direction is towards us. Some views I've heard that there is a concern that China may be directly targeting us in order to take us down. Uh, There are others that this is establishing lessons for other allies of the United States. It does seem to me that we have come, for whatever the reason, we have to a high degree come to untoward attention. I don't think there's anything that we've said that hasn't been said by others. Anything at all that we've said that hasn't been said by others. Yet I don't think that there is anybody else, at least in terms of a developed nation that's copped a pounding like we have, Mm -hmm. 
there has to be, you know, we need a conversation with China, but the question is, is one wanted? I would say from my point of view, it's certainly wanted by us. Yeah. Uh, but is it wanted by, by China? I don't know. Very worried about the possibility of something really going pear-shaped on Taiwan. I am still. Mm. That's what we need to prepare ourselves for in a multiplicity of ways. Some American statesmen whom I've talked to in recent times think that my concerns are overdrawn and that they feel that Xi is humongously domestically focused and shifting the ground of Chinese politics and that beyond statements and possibly pressures, he's got going to take it further and the knowledge that this could bubble out into a nuclear exchange, which one can see a track in which that becomes a possibility. I don't think it's necessarily the most likely outcome, but it certainly is a possibility from a conflict over Taiwan. I don't think that's the Chinese, Americans, anyone else would see that worth the candle. The other thing I'd say about Taiwan is not the Afghan national forces. Uh, Taiwan has a very effective military. And this is one of the things that worries me a bit as I push back on the analysis pushed to me, is that rather than the gap for the Chinese capability and Taiwanese broadening in China's favour, I'm not sure it is. I think if you take a look at the huge shift that's occurred in what was hitherto feckless Taiwanese defence planning, has suddenly become very focused and not unlike China's, and that actually it's going to become a harder pill to swallow than an easier one, in which case, if there's going to be anything done, they've got a European railway timetable problem on their hands, the Chinese. And if nothing happens over the next five or six years, I'll probably be able to die reasonably comfortable. Well, gentlemen, I can't believe that we've managed to go through half an hour already. So I'm just going to draw this one to a close by asking you a question about ASPE. As you know, it is our 20th year of operation. And uh, at the beginning of this year, the cabinet records were released, which actually shows the quite careful deliberation that cabinet went through two separate meetings or two separate items to talk about founding of the Institute. Let me just quote to you from one of those cabinet papers. It says, there are two key reasons to establish an independent institute to study strategic policy. The first is to encourage development of alternate sources of advice to government on key strategic and defence policy issues. The principles of contestability have been central to our government's philosophy and practice of public administration. But these principles have not been effectively implemented in relation to defence and strategic policy despite the vital national interests and significant sums of money that are at stake. ASPE will be charged with providing an alternate source of expertise on such issues. Second, public debate of defence policy is inhibited by a poor understanding of the choices and issues involved. ASPE will be tasked to contribute an informed and independent voice to public discussion on those issues. John Howard, do you think your decision to create the Institute has been justified? Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> but I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I think one of the things we should remember is the time context. 
we had passed through, we're going back 20 years, we, we'd passed through a period in which there'd been an absolute surge in the, the breadth and also the quality of independent advice coming to the government on economic matters. You know, I can remember when I, the very first budget I delivered as treasurer in 1978, long time ago, and it was delivered at a time when the sources of commentary and critical appraisal economically, apart from the Treasury and the Reserve Bank, was largely uh, restricted to uh, the economic departments of the four major trading banks and the AMP. This predated the, the rise of all the now very authoritative economic think tanks, and it was becoming increasingly obvious from what you quoted in that cabinet paper that there had to be some kind of rival source of advice. And I think that's been the strongest possible validation of the original decision. I think what's happened, especially I've noticed over the last two or three years, is the increasing degree, and I notice as somebody who still consumes a fair amount of political commentary on television and radio, the contribution, as well as the contributions in newspapers that Aspie is making to the debate and the capacity to fill it. I noticed that, and I noticed that, and if I may say so, that in other more general areas, the contribution that the IPA continues to make. It's, and, this, and it's the quality of the analysis. Don't always agree with it, often do. That's not the point. But you are providing in a very authoritative way this independent advice. And the other advantage, of course, is that, in a sense, the Aspie lookalikes in other countries, particularly but not only the United States and the United Kingdom, look to Australia and say, oh, well, what does Aspie think in the way that we might, what does Brookings think or what does the Hoover Institute think or... Or, or the American Enterprise Institute, and so the list goes on, or, or in Britain Policy Exchange. And there's something of a worldwide fraternity of these organisations. And unless we're part of it and making a contribution to it, I think it lessens the impact of Australian opinion. It's not just good enough to have the opinion of DFAT on foreign affairs or the Treasury on economics, quality Opinions, no, they may be. They're both excellent departments, but you do need quality, independent think tank culture. And Aspie's done that very well. Kim, your thoughts on Aspie at 20? Well, thanks. Thank you, John, for setting up Aspie, and thank you, Peter, for running it so well. I am, it was a very good decision made at the time. Uh, having spent a number of years in Washington, I think it's an even better decision than I thought then. Because our independent thinking capabilities in national security, compared to that in the United States or the UK, is virtually not existing. You move outside Aspie and you're talking about two or three other outfits. Mm. And frankly, without it, there'd be no sensible testing of ideas going on at all, point one. Point two, your budget analysis is still the best. Uh, the budget is basically opaque in the defence area to the rest of the community and to most of the Department of Defence. So the defence books that are produced routinely by ASPE in relation to the budget are absolutely critical. 
public understanding of how the defence dollar is actually being spent. And then thirdly, and this was struck me again, reading your excellent ANZUS uh, compendium that has just come out and must be read by everybody listening to this. I was baffled by how little I knew. I thought I was really on top of the defence and alliance issues. I thought that about myself actually for quite a while. I now know that's not true. That actually, when you start to go through those articles written by people whose names I barely know, and when I read The Strategist every day and their articles again by people whom I barely know or don't know at all, and they're so good and so insightful and so well informed in providing folk with factoids, I don't know where we'd actually be without Aspie in that national security space. It's not quite the foreign policy space. The foreign policy area, which Aspie also deals with, uh, has more people in the game. In the defence area, apart from Aspie and SDSC at ANU, there is nothing. And it would be, and this is at a point of time when we have to be much cleverer thinkers than we have ever been, and we'll have to be for the rest of my life anyway, and I suspect my children and grandchildren. So there has to be an ASPE around uh, because nobody else will do the ASPE job. Well, gentlemen, if ASPE was a football club, I would declare the both of you joint number one ticket holders. Uh, it's been a wonderful discussion. It's great to see the both of you and to hear your views on the big strategic issues that the Institute has grappled with over the last 20 years. And here's to the next 20 and to many more conversations, I hope, between us. Thank you very much for joining Thank us you. today. And cheers. That's all we have time for on policy, guns and money. Today you heard a conversation with Mr Peter Jennings, Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Mr John Howard, former Prime Minister of Australia, and the Honourable Kim Beasley, Governor of Western Australia. Thanks for celebrating our 100th episode with us. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon.